0: Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist, where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Do you ever wonder why some people excel under intense pressure while other people simply fold? How is it that an Olympic athlete can train for four years or more, honing their skills with exact precision, and then in the final moment, they make some stupid crucial mistake and they blow their shot at gold? Maybe you've had the experience of preparing for hours for a dream job interview, but then when you finally sat down to talk, you completely froze up and forgot everything that you prepared or... Maybe you've had an argument with a friend, a coworker, or a partner, and you said something that you instantly regretted, but then you spent the rest of the night ruminating over what you did wrong and wondering why nobody likes you. Or how about that noise, that creaking that you hear late at night as you lie in bed, and you of course convince yourself that it must be a serial killer coming to murder you. If you have experienced any of these situations or anything similar, then you have experienced something that's called chatter chatter is the dark side of our inner voice and trust me we all have it my guest today is best selling author ethan cross who's a professor of psychology and management a father of two and the best-selling author of chatter the voice in our head why it matters and how to harness it he defines chatter as getting stuck in a negative thought loop and it is often the reason behind our successes or failures especially in high pressure situations Chatter is what feeds into imposter syndrome, into limiting beliefs, and the worries that we consciously and unconsciously obsess over all the time. The good news is that there are tools for harnessing your chatter and even making it your ally. And in this conversation, Ethan is going to share the research that he has uncovered and the numerous strategies that he has discovered so you can befriend your chatter in any situation that you encounter. All I gotta say is, I wish that I had discovered his book three weeks before I ran the Ninja Warrior course instead of the month after. And if you wanna hear how my own chatter disrupted my performance on the course and how you can apply my failures to then turn them into your future successes, trust me, you don't wanna skip today's conversation. All right, so without further ado, my conversation with best selling author and professor Ethan Cross. <laughs> I'm here today with Ethan Cross, who's a professor of psychology and management. He's a father of two, and he is the best-selling author of the book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. You're also the founder and director of the University of Michigan, aside go blue, Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory, and one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I think is going to help people better understand what you do is you and your colleagues like to think of yourselves as mind mechanics. So I am super excited to have this conversation today because it's not about any of the the superficial, fluffy stuff or whatever. It's like, let's just dig in to understand the deepest recesses of our mind and what really drives us. And you're one of the world's foremost experts in understanding those voices and where they come from. So, Ethan, it's a pleasure to finally get you on the microphone today. Hey,
1: thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I I like nothing more than digging into those recesses and exploring them. So really excited to be here today.
0: So before we dive into the nitty gritty, I wanna better understand a little bit more about you and what in the world ever drove you to decide, you know what, I'm gonna spend my life's work understanding the voices in my head and then helping other people understand the voices in their head. So just talk to me a little bit more about your journey and how you got to doing what it is that you do today. Well, the journey began... um, uh, a long time ago, when I was around three years old, I had a dad
1: who was fascinated by Eastern philosophy and meditation and also believed that you should talk to kids like you talk to anyone else. So he treated me like an adult from a very young age. Not to say we never had any fun, like we did go watch The Karate Kid and things like that. But um, but we had some, some serious conversations. And beginning around the time that I was little, he started talking to me about the importance of, of going inside. You know, finding this kernel of truth, listening to your inner voice whenever you experience something bad happen in your life. And, you know, bad happening back then wasn't anything monumental uh, in the form of huge, huge atrocity, atrocities I experienced, but, you know, arguments with friends or loved ones as I got older, you know, dating, getting rejected, things like that. And, and basically, I followed my dad's advice throughout my childhood and adolescence. When something bad happened, I went inside, I introspected, I tried to figure out why I was feeling the way I did, how can I feel better, I would come up with a solution, and I move on. So I never really got stuck in, in negativity. Uh, then I got to college, and I took my first psychology class, and I learned on the one hand that what I was doing, introspecting and, and tapping into this inner voice, if you will, That this, on the one hand, was a superpower that many people also use to deal with adversity in their lives. But it also was a huge vulnerability for lots of other people. Um, Lots of the time when we get stressed out, when when we experience a challenge, we turn our attention inward. but We don't come up with solutions. We end up stumbling instead. We ruminate. We worry. We catastrophize. Huge, huge problem for not just a person, but I'd argue society. And so why does that happen? Why do we have this ability to use our mind to solve our problems, but seemingly when we most need to use that tool, it fails us. That really sparked an interest. And then, you know, the question began, well, what do I do with that interest? Like, how do I turn this into a life's work? You know, I I found that I would start thinking about this question. Why does introspection sometimes work and others other times not? I think about it like when I shouldn't have been thinking about it. And what I mean by that is that I'd be like hanging out with my buddies on a Saturday night. We've been like walking to a party on campus and I'd be thinking about, Hey, you you ever think about this? I I remember saying to like my friend, Dan, he's like, what are you talking about? You know, it's 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday. Why are you thinking about this? And so, so basically I thought um, if I'm spending my spare time thinking about these issues, well, that's not a bad way to maybe spend your life. And so I went to graduate school to learn how to use science to to answer some of the questions that I had. And I've been doing science on this issue ever since.
0: When we talk about this concept of quote unquote chatter, that can mean a lot of different things. And what I'm hoping to accomplish for today's conversation is essentially using your book to g- kind of give people an introduction into some of these various ideas. But first, I think it's really important for people to know what is chatter and what does it even mean? Because I think that for different people, it's going to mean different things, where for some, especially those that might have uh, ADD, ADHD chatters, oh, I should go do the dishes. For- oh, no, you know what? And wait, I need to do this. And wait, what was I doing again? That's a version of chatter. I know that that's one that I had five minutes before our conversation. Another would be the the deeper introspections um, about life and meaning and what am I doing and then others. And this is certainly one that I want to dive into a lot deeper would be the the personal identities that we assign to ourselves in this chatter that says, I'm not good enough for this, or I don't belong here, things like that. Um, But from your perspective, can you help me define, help the audience better understand what do you mean by the word chatter?
1: So when I use the term chatter, I'm referring to getting stuck in a negative thought loop. So you're thinking about something over and over again, and you're not making progress in terms of shifting the way you're thinking about that negative issue in ways that might help you feel better. Chatter about the past in technical terms is called rumination. Chatter about the future in technical terms is called worry. Um, So it can deal with the past or the future or even the present. But the key idea is that we're looping over and over. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm such a oh, I can't believe I said that. What if this happens? Oh my God, what if that happens? You're just looping though and you're immersed in the negativity and you're incapable of of really adopting a broader perspective in that moment that might help you find a solution. So that's what chatter is. Now, it is important to clarify that not all forms of introspection or self-talk or not all forms of this voice in your head our chatter, or our bad things. Uh, if we if we step back a little bit, when I use the term um, self-talk or the inner voice, what I'm effectively talking about is our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And our ability to use language to, to reflect on our problems is, is an amazing asset that helps us do lots of different things. It helps us do things like keep in mind what what we have to do, what's on our to-do list at any given moment of time. All right, you know, finish the proposal, call this person back, spread the mulch in the lawn. Yes, that was actually my to-do list for today. But like that's my inner voice. What do I have to do today? That's the the inner voice is part of of what we call our our verbal working memory system. It's a basic system that is essential to allowing us to function in this world. We also use our inner voice to simulate and plan. Like when I rehearse what I'm going to say during a meeting or a presentation in advance. When I practice in my mind, that's my inner voice. And then to go back to, you know, you, you raised the issue of identity um, and meaning a little bit earlier. We use our inner voice to help craft our understanding of who we are. So when when things happen that we don't have a good understanding of, like when we're rejected, like, I you know, we don't most of us don't go around the world expecting to always be rejected. When things happen that challenge you, we often turn our attention inward to make sense of those experiences and the way we make sense of them informs our understanding of who we are, right? And we use our inner voice to help us do that. So inner voice, lots of good stuff comes from it. The dark side of the inner voice is what I call chatter. So Hopefully that gives you the terrain.
0: It does, yeah. And we're going to dive a lot deeper into a lot of that. But one of the things I think it's really important for people to understand that was really eye-opening when I read your book is how prevalent and pervasive and powerful it is. So talk to me a little bit just about how much we actually are talking to ourselves throughout the day, because this is an area that you certainly know a lot about through scientific research.
1: So we spend between one half and one third of our waking hours not focused on the present and we're not focused on the present. We're drifting away, thinking about other things. And we spend a significant portion of that time drifting away, talking to ourselves, like using language to reflect on what's going on. So that, that is a significant chunk of our, of our experience in the world. And, you know, it's interesting because in, in, in current times, we often hear about the importance of being in the present, being mindful. And as I talk about in the book, like mindfulness is great. Uh, I think it's one tool of many, many others that can be useful for managing chatter. But there's been a distortion of of the message behind mindfulness, at least in my eyes, which is you hear a lot of people suggest that we always have to be in the moment and that we should strive to always be in the moment. I think that message is fundamentally wrong because A, it works against the way the human mind is has evolved. We've evolved to be able to travel in time in our minds, to focus on the past or the future. And B, our ability to do that is essential to our ability to succeed and thrive and grow as, as a species. Like think about how would you be like, if you couldn't learn from your mistakes, right? That involves going back in time, thinking about the past, the able to learn from our, our mistakes is is i think it's not controversial to say that this is essential right to to development and growth or ability to plan for the future we need to plan for the future for all sorts of things right our retirement our kids our own ability to you know excel at work and so forth so so i like to think about this piece of tissue we have between our two ears as an amazing time traveling machine and We all can travel in time, past, future, present. Sometimes we get stuck, right? The time machine breaks down. And in a certain sense, what what Chatter, the book, not the negative manifestation, but my book does, is it tries to talk about the tools that we have evolved to possess, which help us get unstuck in the past or the future, tools that allow us to become better mental time travelers. Refocusing on the present is one thing you can do, but it is far from the only thing you could do. Many, many other tools exist. And what we're learning is that the more healthy tools you use, the better. So it's not about doing just one thing, just meditating, just exercising. It's about identifying cocktails of tools. That work for you. Um, And so so that's a a lot about what I do and what the book is about.
0: One area that I wanted to touch upon a little bit further, because I think you and I are very much in agreement, is, I hate to use this word, but kind of the bastardization of mindfulness and meditation, what it's supposed to be. And I know a lot of people that will say, oh, I tried meditation, but it doesn't work. I just, I feel like such a failure because I'm supposed to not have any thoughts and be in the present, but I just keep thinking. So I'm not good at it. And my response to that is, in my experience, is that it's not about I need to clear my mind of thought, it's developing an awareness. Oh, I didn't realize how many times I was saying this one thing to myself, but now I'm aware that it's there. And that, to to me, one of the most powerful tools that you can have if you're interested in personal growth or professional growth and development is not having necessarily the tools or having this clear present mind, it's having the awareness oh, these are the thoughts that keep coming up in my head. Now that I hear them, having that awareness is the first step to seeing if I can rewire or rewrite them. Yeah,
1: I think you're exactly right. You know, a lot of the meditative practices that emerge out of the mindfulness tradition are fundamentally about making you more aware of how the human mind works. And one thing that seems to be the case is we can't actually control the thoughts that pop into our head. Right. So I don't actually know why a particular thought is going to pop into my head at a particular moment in time. That's outside of my conscious control. What we can do is manage those thoughts once they appear. And there are lots of things we can do to to do that. But but I think what meditation does and mindfulness does is it makes it clear how these these random thoughts are popping up at any given moment in time. And then, hey, you've got a choice you can elaborate on it you could take it this way or that way you could let it float away and and as you say simply having an awareness of how the human mind works in this regard can be empowering i think this is also true more broadly about chatter right one of the things i hope to do with this book is give people a vocabulary for their inner experience i think a lot of people that i've spoken to i don't think i know they've told me like they they get consumed in a thought spiral, they're overcome with chatter. They don't even realize it until a, until after it is fully blown, and and really hard to to grapple with. I think one of the things that happen when you work in this space is is you begin to identify really quickly when you're slipping into a moment of chatter, or you can even begin to predict when it might happen, and then take action appropriately. People often ask me, "Hey, hey Ethan, Professor Cross, you know E, whatever their nickname for me is." Do you ever experience chatter? You know, you just wrote a book on how to imagine. And I, I, I look at them, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a human being. I experience chatter at times. But what I've gotten really, really good at is identifying it the moment it creeps up on me. And the moment it does, I take proactive action to nip it in the bud. And most of the time, those steps I take do help quite a bit. So I think we are seeing eye to eye quite well.
0: For sure, yeah. And one of the things that I want to talk about next is better understanding how our unique type of chatter and the voices and the scripts that we have in our heads develop. Because I think a lot of people, first, they don't even really have an awareness of a lot of the behaviors that they have or the choices that they make because they're just uh, – they have the programming, so to speak, and they make these choices based on, well, this is just who I am. Then they start to develop the awareness and they realize, oh, this is actually a voice that's in my head that I didn't realize I was listening to. But then when that happens, the next step is where is it even coming from? And you alluded to a little bit of the fact that it's part of our evolution and it's just part of our survival mechanism is being able to learn from our mistakes and predict the future. Um, But I think uh, one of the areas in your book that really hit home for me that I think is important for the work that I'm doing with my clients is understanding how the chatter and the voices in our own heads Might have at some point been when we were much younger, somebody else's voices that we were first externalized and then internalized without realizing it. So let's talk a little bit more about the origin of some of our chatter.
1: The one, the one maybe shift, I would say, let's talk about the origins of our self-talk before we get into the origins of chatter. You're
0: the expert here. So you, you, you take
1: the reins. That was uh was that, was that, was that, that was a, that was a, that was a polite kind of redirect, you know, just. Nicely done. um, Yes. um, So. What's so interesting about language is a lot of psychologists, myself included, think of self-talk as one of the ways that we first learn how to control ourselves. And it's a phenomenally interesting way in which this happens. So basically, a young child does something wrong and their caretaker, their parents, their grandmas, their nannies, whomever, give them instructions about don't do that. You shouldn't do that. Here's what you do instead. And what first starts happening is the child will then repeat those instructions to themselves out loud, actually. So if you've ever been around young children, you've probably seen them do this cute thing where they go in a corner and kind of just talk to themselves. Um, Have you ever seen this?
0: Happens? Oh, sure. Yeah. I've I've got two young kids as well. So, yeah. yep, absolutely.
1: So it's a quite, quite common experience. And, you know, sometimes they do when they're playing with dolls, but essentially what they're doing is rehearsing in many cases, the messages from their parents and caretakers. And then eventually they start internalizing those messages. So they don't just direct themselves out loud. Oh no, I shouldn't put the fork here because then I'll get in trouble. I should make sure to do it here. Then the kids start doing that internally, silently coaching themselves along. But that's one of the ways in which the messages of our parents and more broadly, the cultures to which we belong, how those voices in a very real sense, get put into our own head and become part of our own inner voice. And that's how, if you take that further and you get into the world of some of these kind of like self-disparaging critical voices, um, that would also provide a template for, for thinking about how, you know, uh, a constant, you know, harsh environment might influence the way people talk and think about their own lives. Now, I do want to make clear that the direction that all of this works is not Unidirectional in the sense that the arrow only points one way. For a long time, we used to think that parents influence kids, and that's where the story ended. What we now know, and have known for for quite a while, is that the arrows go both ways. We say things to kids that seep into their own inner voices. They then say things to us and behave in particular ways to us that seep in and affect our own inner voices as well. So it's an intricate complex dynamic and i think it makes a lot of sense given given how complicated we all are you'd, you'd think that we would be sensitive at any, any given moment in time to new information and kids can certainly provide that to parents but but that's that's how you know our inner voices are shaped so our experiences can play a role and as we age the the influence The forces that influence that inner voice can also change. It starts off being primarily parents, um, caregivers, caretakers, same thing. Uh, As we get older, uh, our social groups, our friends um, and colleagues also begin to play more of a role. Uh, We also know that genes play a role in this as well, uh, as they do with most, most things. And most excitedly, we now know that our experiences in the world can actually influence whether certain genes that we have are expressed or not so there are both biological and learning experiences and we've learned that those experiences can um, come together in really interesting and complex ways that we're still trying to understand
0: That's T-O-P-O. Well, and that's an area that I actually wanted to go into next is I want people to really understand how powerful the voices in our head can be, not just because they're noisy and we can't shut them up, but how they can actually not only influence our behavior, but influence our biology and our health. Because once you understand the power that your voices have and this negative chatter has – the more, at least for me, I realized I really need to get these under control because of all the things that I thought were stopping me from having the success that I want, either in my career or as a dad, or now as an American Ninja Warrior, we assign all these external factors and obstacles. And what I've realized for both myself and for all the students and clients that I work with in my coaching program, 99 times out of a hundred, the number one obstacle standing between you and what you want is in your head. It's some mindset or some thought or some negative script. And you've actually done done extensive study to understand the biological effects of this chatter, Uh, so talk a little bit more. One of the things that I really loved uh, that you mentioned was this idea and this analogy of your genes being like a piano because I've looked into gene expression and understanding all the things that are coming out in the science and it never quite clicked. Then I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, I totally get it. So talk a little bit more about that, but also what you found as far as the chatter in our heads and how it can uh, actually translate to physical pain or discomfort.
1: Yeah, so uh, without being hyperbolic or exaggerating, I think the chatter and when when the voice in our head runs awry, Uh, I think this is one of the biggest problems we face as a society, individually, but also culturally too, as, as larger groups. It impacts three domains that I think are really make life worth living, our ability to think and perform well at work, our social relationships, and physically, our health. The way it impacts our health is as follows. We often hear that stress is a killer. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. So Just experiencing a jolt of stress, that's actually, I would argue, a really good thing. It's like, it's healthy that when we experience, when we're confronted with a threat in the world, we have this system that quickly mobilizes us to approach or avoid it. Like super, super useful to have that system, that alarm system built in. What makes stress really toxic is when we have a stress response, it's activated and then it remains chronically activated over time, right? So we don't return back to baseline. And that chronic activation is exactly what chatter does because we experience a stressful event in the world. It ends objectively, but in our mind, it persists because we're replaying it over and over and over again. We're using language to help us do that. Like when we worry and ruminate about stuff, that rumination worry studies show that that maintains this physiological stress response over time in ways that predict a, a host of different physical maladies, things ranging from problems of cardiovascular you know, cardiovascular disease to um, problems of inflammation, certain forms of cancer. So really some significant negative physical health consequences. Then the other thing that that chatter does, as you intimated before, is it plays a role in influencing which genes we have that are expressed or not expressed at any given moment in time. What I didn't realize prior to getting immersed in in this work on chatter was that most of us have the exact same genes. We walk around with the same genes. What, What distinguishes between us is not necessarily the genes we have but whether those genes are expressed essentially whether they're turned on or turned off. And that's where the piano metaphor is really helpful. Think about your genes as a piano and we each have a piano in our, in each one of our cells, but we can play that piano differently, strike different notes and chords. And the fact that each of us has different songs going on in our cells, that makes us all unique. And so What research is showing is that our chatter can influence how our genes are expressed, what songs are played in our cells. And there's some really interesting work showing that when we are in in chatter states, when we're experiencing chatter for a prolonged period of times, what that does is it, it turns on genes that are involved in inflammation, inflammatory responses, And it effectively turns off genes that are involved in fighting off viruses. So more inflammation and less fighting viruses over time, that is a really bad formula for well-being. I'm going to butcher this quote, it's in my book, but the researcher who's done a lot of this work, Steve Cole, I think he 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 described this genetic profile as death at the molecular level or something like that. So it really, it's a pernicious state and it's a way in which our mind and in particular, the voices in our head can influence our biology all the way down to the cellular genetic level. So that's one way that chatter can, can seep into the skin. The other way that it, it can also do so, um, that I mentioned very briefly in the book that's still interesting is, chatter has been linked with enhanced cellular aging. And the way this works is within our cells, we have, um, we have these chromosomes, and you could think of our chromosomes as like shoelaces. And at the very tip is a protective coating, like the little um, plastic cap at the end of the shoelace that prevents it from being frayed. So those protective caps, those are called telomeres. And as we get older, they shorten and begin to, to f- essentially fray. And as they shorten and fray, things, genetic information begins to unravel. Not a good thing. And it's associated with, with disease. And so what, what's their linkages have been shown between chatter. And the accelerated fraying of these protective caps of these telomeres, and that's another way that chatter can get under the skin, ways that are harmful. So, so there's lots of negative stuff we could focus on. Um, I, I think the, the 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 reason to get into this, to talk about this, is number one, it's how we work, and so if people are interested in how we work, this is it. But number two, it's it's to know, to your point, that how we think about the world and how we use language to do so, it doesn't just lead us to feel bad subjectively. It can impact us in a very concrete physical way. So, so really pay attention to it. The good news is that there are countless tools that exist that we've learned about, which can be used to counteract these effects. So
0: yeah, we're going to dive much, much deeper into a lot of those psychological tools very, very shortly. The reason that I brought this conversation up specifically is I want people to understand how powerful the voices are in your head, but also that you have a lot more control than you might think in allowing them to direct you where you want to go rather than not direct you. Uh, And there was actually a conversation that coincidentally came up just last week in my coaching program. And I had advised somebody um, about something and I wanna get your your perspective on it because you're the expert and I'm not. I'm just this guy that decided to get a microphone and start to help people because I love this. And like you mentioned, Um, I'm the kind of person my whole life, you can ask my parents all the way back to when I first was expressing language. I would look at something and I would always say, how does that work? Why does it do that? Whether it's watching a machine or watching how a house is built or whatever it is, my first question is, how are they doing that? How do all the pieces come together? And now I've just translated that to how the the human mind works and how people work, which as we talked about a little bit uh, offline before we started, that's why I chose to get into film. I thought it was because I liked Hollywood and movies. I realized that I just love telling people People's stories, And now I'm just helping to do it on the nonfiction level instead of the fiction level. But going back to the conversation, I had a student um, that's new to my program that said, I got to be honest. I feel like a lot of this personal development stuff is just kind of a bunch of crap. I just, all I need to do is I need to to put in the work and I don't need all these crazy affirmations and all this woo-woo stuff and, you know, the secret and this and that or the other thing. And it's like, if you have the affirmations, you know, maybe that's all that you need or maybe I just put in the work. It's like, what do you think? And my advice to him was that I believe you need both. I believe if you're somebody that just always has the positive affirmations and believes you're going to succeed and just sits back and waits, waits for the universe to do it for you, nothing's going to happen. But conversely- I also believe, and I've seen through a lot of my practice with my clients, I can give you all of the tips and the tactics. I can tell you how to do the things where you're getting stuck, but until you manage the mindset and you actually believe that it's something you're capable of achieving, all the tools in the world really don't make any difference whatsoever. So I teach the mindset, then I teach the tactics. Would you have advised him differently? I'm assuming this is a conversation you've probably had more than once.
1: Yeah, no, the way you've described, I think is spot on. And so I might use a slightly different vocabulary to describe this, but in terms of the message, it's the same. So I like to think about self-control, which is really, or self-regulation, what I think we're talking about here. How do you how do you approach life, and how do you, you know, regulate yourself when doing so to achieve, you know, what you want to achieve? I think that has um, two pieces to it. There's a motivation piece and an ability piece. The and you need both. Okay, so motivation means you have goals that you want to fulfill. You know, you want to become a director, an actor, a scientist, whatever. You want to sit on your couch, right? Whatever the goal is. Um, And then the strategies or the tools, those are the things you do to help you achieve your goals. Now, you can have a person that knows all of the tools that science has on earth. If they're not motivated to use those tools, then they won't, right? And in fact, like how do you even determine which tools to use if you're not motivated? Like, you know, let's say I show up to a job site and I've got like a big fat tool belt with me with 30 tools. If I don't know what I need to do, how do I know whether to pull out a hammer or a pair of pliers, right? So you you need motivation to guide you. If you don't have it, the tools aren't going to be useful. The flip side is you can be motivated all you want. I want to build rocket ships. I think it is so freaking cool that we can build spaceships right now. I want to work for NASA. Well, if you don't have the tools to do that, if you don't know the physics and the mathematics and everything else you need, Good luck building a rocket ship. I would argue that the same thing is true for things like managing your emotions and managing your inner voice. some people may have stumbled on some tools that work for them. and in fact in in my research and, and and the interviews I did for the book like a lot of people stumble on tools that help them but they also stumble on tools that they think work which actually don't work or tools that a culture tells you works but science says don't. But then there are lots of other things that people just, they're not on their radar that science has revealed. And so there's a universe of tools out there. And I think the more we could do to educate people about those tools and also to get them to think really clearly about motivation and what their goals are, the better, the better people will, will be. So, uh, in some, I think I think our, our perspectives are remarkably uh, consistent. What, what do you think?
0: Uh, I absolutely agree, and there's a third component that I want to add to this. I love this idea of reframing it as you have to have the motivation and the desire, and that motivation and desire doesn't get you anywhere without the tools or the knowledge or the information or the systems. So let's go back to the, the rocket ship analogy. I love this. So let's say that I'm both motivated to build rocket ships, and I say the coolest thing ever to do with my life would be to build rocket ships. And I'm going to go to school and I'm going to learn the geometry and the physics and everything that I need to to practically build a rocket ship. However, the third component that I'm the most interested in and the reason I'm talking to you, what if I don't believe that I belong there? What if I'm thinking I'm motivated to do it and it's awesome and I have all the tools, but who am I to think that I can build rocket ships? That's the part I'm the most interested in. Well,
1: I mean – Then we want to tackle that because that is a self-defeating belief. And we know that um, if you don't feel like you belong, that this can be a powerful impediment to achievement. In fact, there's some great studies which show that small shifts that can promote a person's sense of belonging can actually be quite powerful for getting them to then stay to follow through with their goals and use the tools that they have. So that sense of belonging is, is huge. And more generally having tools to manage, I think what you're talking about is not just specific to belonging, but really more self doubt and self critique more generally. Like we are amazingly creative as a people, right. In terms of how we can sabotage our, ourselves, right? Like I don't belong. I suck. It's too hard. Like there are lots of lots of things we could do to kind of psych ourselves out. And so I think we do wanna um those are instances where if you identify those beliefs, like this is where the mind mechanics piece comes in, right? So if we're thinking about the mind as this amazingly complex machine, and if the thing that's uh, impairing you is this one cog that's not running optimally, which is this, you know, self-critique cog, then that's what we want to target. And there are lots of ways to do it, like lots of tools that could be useful, right? Tools ranging from, um, you know, you thinking, like thinking about the big picture. Is there really evidence that you don't belong, right? Really? Like, hmm, you got through astrophysics, like don't know that a lot of people do that. So, so why don't you think you belong here? Like, is there actually evidence that supports that? Or, you know, you might do something like, "Hey, so, uh, you know, Zach, you're, you're, wow, you know, what, what would you if I, what would I what would you do if I came to you, and I was telling you these things? What would you say to me? Say that to yourself, right? And you know, use your name to do it. All right, Zach, here's what you should do: coach yourself through it like you're talking to someone else. It's another thing you could do. A third thing you could do is, you know. Uh, Find what I like to think of as your chatter advisors. Um, You know, there are people in this world who, some people are really good at helping us manage our chatter because they not only listen to us and, and take the time to learn about and empathize with us with respect to what we're experiencing, but they're also skilled at helping us reframe our experiences in ways that are really productive, right? So they're not just a sounding board to vent our emotions to which we know can feel good in the moment, but doesn't really have long-term benefit. But they can let us vent a little bit, but then really help broaden our perspective. Like go to those people. That doesn't have to be just one. Get their advice, get their mentorship. I think we would all um, be much better off if we thought carefully about who our, who our coaches are. Uh, so those are just a, a, a few things you could do that I talk about in the book. There are lots of other things too. And I think the better off we are at managing those kinds of self disparaging beliefs. Uh, the better off we'll be in life.
0: Yeah, and th- there's a couple of those that we're gonna dive into uh, much, much deeper in a little bit. Uh, one of them uh, to, and again, if I'm if I'm using the wrong terms in any way, I'm just going off the top of my head from reading your book, but one of them would be distancing, this idea of creating a distance between being stuck in your head and it's all me, me, me and I, I, I and uh, finding somebody else out there that can kind of provide that, that third person perspective and also this concept of time traveling um, and kind of, you know, looking towards the future and we'll, we'll go into those more uh, a little bit later, but I wanna dig even deeper into the sense of imposter syndrome and these limiting beliefs and these scripts that we have. This is something that I deal with extensively in my program, but also something that I deal with personally myself. And one of the reasons that I decided to pursue this goal of becoming an American Ninja Warrior at the age of 41 with a massive dad bod and full-time job and podcast and two kids, is that if I'm gonna teach other people how to set audacious goals, and overcome all of the challenges along the way, I want to face this at the highest level because that's how I'm going to learn is by going through the gauntlet myself. And what I found is that I had all the motivation in the world. I just, I sat my wife down about three and a half years ago now during uh, the the holiday season. And I said, I've got a crazy idea. She looked at me, she's like, I always have crazy ideas. So it was no surprise there. So it was more the look on her face was what's next. And I said, I want to be on American Ninja Warrior. And straight face, she's like, yeah, I can totally see that. That was it. Not excitement, like, oh my God, that's amazing. Just, yeah, okay, I can see that. And since then, I've just been doing it. I've been very motivated and I've found the right people that have provided the tools and the strategies and the training. But what I identified is that I have a very self-deprecating sense of humor that I always just kind of passed off as, oh, it's, it's not really making that much, a, a, that big of a deal. But I realized that the script that was in my head for every workout where I was working out, like, well, one of my trainers is uh, Tony Horton, the guy that created the, the P90X programs. And I've been training with other top-level ninjas and going to all these workouts thinking, how amazing is that I get to be here, but – The damage was done and I didn't realize until I actually got on the course, but the script that kept going through my head was, I don't really belong here. What am I doing here? And the joke that I would make is I always said, I'm the Rudy of the group, right? I'm the guy that comes in, oh, put me in coach. I'm going to do it. Like, I just want that one play on the field, but that pervaded my mindset such that when I actually showed up on the course, guess what the first thought was that came to my head? Not I've got this or I can do it. It was, what am I doing here? I don't really belong here. And I could tell that that changed the way that I approached the course. And for anybody that's listening that does creative work, maybe they haven't actually been in front of all the lights and the cameras and gotten to the point that I did on the show, but whether it's working with a director or being on set, you have that moment of, do I really belong here? Like, I, I, I shouldn't be here. I, I don't really know how to do this. And I see threads on Facebook all the time. I just saw one last week where somebody said, even though I've been doing this for years, I still get the feeling that somebody's gonna discover that I don't know what I'm doing. So that had a tremendous power over my actual physical performance. And one of the things that really struck me about your research in this book that I want people to better understand about the power of this chatter is how it affects your executive function because I got to the point where I had been training for these obstacles multiple times per week. And one of the thoughts that went through my head right before they said go was I looked down at my feet and I said, oh crap, which one is my right foot? I forgot my left and my right about five seconds before I had to go. And I needed to lead with my right foot on the first obstacle and I forgot. And that happens to a lot of people, whether it's in a conversation or an argument or they're speaking on stage. Explain to us how all of these limiting beliefs are not only just thoughts, but they can actually affect the way that we perform.
1: So I love that you did American Ninja Warrior. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, I've set some audacious goals for myself, but they've involved, you know, figuring out how to mulch my lawn. (laughs) (laughs) So you've raised the stakes a little bit. Um, So let's start with, you touched on a lot of things in that, in that uh, anecdote that I want to come back to in turn. Let's start with executive function and performance and what Chatter does. And it's really simple. Chatter breaks down performance, and it does so in ways that can be quite consequential. So there are two ways that chatter can sink us when we're uh, under the spotlight, whether it be the American Ninja Warrior spotlight or you know the NBA finals or having to just compute a set of computations or work on a problem at work. Uh One thing that happens when we experience chatter is it consumes our attention. Now, we only have so much attention that we can devote to things at any given moment in time. And when all of our attention, which, by the way, is a big piece of what executive functions consist of, how we deal with attention. When all of our attention is devoted to chatter, guess what? There's not a whole lot left over to devote to other things like you know, determining which foot is left versus right, or how do I compute this mathematical problem? Or, you know, what were the talking points that I I was about to engage in? So that's one way that it can really, really undermine us. The other thing that chatter does is it zooms us in on the issue that we are worried about, right? So it consumes us, as I've just described it in all of our attention. And so when you are when you're performing under the spotlight, the form that that immersion can take is it, you know, when you're performing like sports, a lot of the things we do are, are these complex habits that we've developed over time. We've strung together very complex sequences of behavior. So I used to play baseball when I was in in high school and I used to pitch and a pitching windup is a really complicated Movement, Right. You, you get the ball, you set your arms, you step back, you lift your, your knee up to as high as you can. You then, you know, lean back further. You redistribute your weight. You're squeezing the ball in a particular way with your fingers positioned appropriately. Super, super complicated when, when you're experiencing chatter and you're not sure if you're going to perform well, what you do is you hyper-focus on that complex behavior. And the result is it breaks it down. It leads to something called paralysis by analysis. So I'm up there on the mound and I'm not just thinking about, all right, fastball, lights out, right? Instead it's, am I squeezing the ball tight enough? Am I you know waiting enough time before I release it? Am I lifting my knee high enough? And once you start doing that, everything breaks down. So those are two ways that chatter can really sink us. Now, there are oodles and oodles of research. That's a technical term, by the oodles, way. Yes. Um, oodles, yes. That, oodles that show how chatter in the form of rumination, worry, perseveration can sink people across the board, whether it is you know people working in the creative arts or or performance. More generally, just recently, the World Health Organization put a price tag on the cost of anxiety and depression, which we know chatter fuels in the workplace. And for the, for the global economy, it was over a trillion dollars. So these are huge issues. And you know, just to go back again to like why it matters, why did I decide to spend my life studying this? And why did I spend a significant portion of my professional life writing a book on it? We've already talked about our physical health, right? Really important thing to a lot of people, certainly myself, I think many others too, And now we've just talked about our work life and our recreational life. Like, so we're, we're rapidly, you know, crossing off the areas of life that really make life worth living and, and chatter is the, is the element that is crossing
0: those things off. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topomat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, I just realized this may turn into a personal therapy session for me and that may have no relevance whatsoever to my audience at this point, but you just gave me massive flashbacks to middle school because you were just talking about being a pitcher in baseball. And I remember when I was in middle school, I was one of the only left handers and the high school uh, baseball coach had singled me out and said, I want you to be our star pitcher in high school. So I was being taught, I think it was in sixth or seventh grade, being taken out for side sessions and private training sessions to teach me how to be a pitcher because I could be their ace left hander. And when I was in practice, I was unstoppable. Like, they were teaching me things, and I was strike after strike after strike, and they put me in my first game, and it was a train wreck of a disaster. And you actually talk about how this pro- uh, happened to a professional pitcher. His name was uh, Rich – was it Rick or Rick, Rick Ankeel? Rick, and Rich, I can't Rick Ankeel. So Rick Ankeel, um, who went through something similar on a much larger stage. Um, but because of that experience where I went from I'm an ace pitcher and I'm in, you know, the seventh grader that's, you know – Uh, throwing all the strikes and strikeouts in practice. And in the game setting, it was wild pitches and it was just a big mess. What I'm realizing now, all of it's just starting to come to the surface. Like I said, it's going to be like our personal therapy session. Since that, since that moment, I've had sports performance anxiety where whether this had happened in high school as well, where once they realized it couldn't pitch, I became a really good hitter. And when I was in like the, I guess, junior varsity, I batted uh, 500 one year, which if anybody that follows baseball, 500 is pretty good. As soon as they put me into my first varsity game, I couldn't have hit the ball if you had given me an eight by eight. Like I just, I struck out time after time after time. And it was because of nerves. And because of that, everything that I've tried to do that's been a live performance since then, I've had that same performance anxiety, which I think is one of the reasons I chose my profession. Because as somebody that is – I call myself a recovering perfectionist, but I'm very much a perfectionist. As a film editor, I get all of this time to myself to get it right, knowing that when somebody sees it, nothing can go wrong because it's finished. But a lot of the things from my middle and high school athletics experience came out when I was on that course because in practice, like the the obstacle that I ended up falling on, I could have easily done. It had nothing to do with skill whatsoever. If you were to give me, if I were to run it a hundred times without cameras, I'd probably hit it 97 times out of a hundred. So it was all mental chatter.
1: Yeah. I mean, mental chatter is huge in the performing arts. It's huge in sports as well. And, you know, interestingly, if you, if you watch sports, you'll notice that a lot of athletes have rituals that they engage in, like before, before matches, not even before matches, but often before consequential moments in games. Like if you watch uh, you know, a person in, in the NBA on the free throw line, people have these these, these rituals that they engage in before they take their, their shot, right? And, you know, as I talk about in the book, f- rituals are actually one tool that, uh, really an ancient tool that we have for managing our chatter. And they work in a few different ways that maybe we'll talk about later. But all of this is to say that, you know, you're not alone um, if you've experienced this kind of performance anxiety. Uh, Lots of people do. The good news is we know that there are things you could do to manage it. Now, I do want to come back to one point um, that I didn't address that is really important, I think, and it has to do with your American Ninja Warrior exploits. So you mentioned that when you got there, you said to yourself, oh, um, I can't do this. So I love that. Not that you had that experience, but it really sets up and validates the science really well. So what we know from lots of research is that when you put a person in a stressful situation, they, they instantly ask themselves two questions. And this often happens subconsciously outside of awareness. The first thing they do is they scan the situation and they, okay, well, what is required of me? And then they say, can I do it? Do I have the resources to manage? So it is two questions. If you, if you ask yourself those two questions, what's required of me and can I do it? And you answer, nope, can't do it. That elicits what we call a threat response. And a threat response has a particular constellation of outcomes associated with it. There's an elevated heart rate coupled with a constriction of your vasculature. And what that means is your heart starts pumping blood really fast. But the tangle of arteries and veins that carry that blood throughout your body, and which needs the blood in a high stress circumstance, it starts constricting. Turns out that more more blood flow through a smaller space, not a good thing. That's how you get like bursted arteries and things like that. And we also know that this threat response, I can't do it, I can't do it, doesn't just have that negative physiological profile linked to it, but also a negative performance profile. So people bring reality in line with their beliefs. You can't do it. And guess what? You don't do it. You screw up. What we also know though, is you can answer that question, those questions differently. What's required me and what do I have to do? Yeah, I can do it. I've done it before. I can manage this, or I think I could do it. And when you have that set of appraisals, when you make sense of the situation in that way, what that does, it leads to a different physiological profile. Your heart's still pumping blood to your body because your body needs it, but your vasculature relaxes. So the blood can throw freely through your body effortlessly. Really good thing. We also know that when you have this challenge orientation or mindset, you also bring reality in line with that mindset. You tend to perform better as well. Now, it's not just that some people reflexively view things as a threat and other people view the same situations as a challenge. Yeah, there are those individual differences. But what I love about the research in this space is that we've discovered that these mindsets, these orientations, they're malleable. You can shift the way you think about these experiences. And when you do, you get the concomitant physiological and behavioral effects. And so one tool uh, people can use to do this is is something I call distant self-talk. Try to coach yourself through a situation like you would give advice to a friend or someone that you were coaching. You know, maybe it's a a kid and use your name to do this uh, silently. That's an important caveat. You don't want to do it out loud, but using your name like, all right, Ethan, what are you going to do here? We find that that's really useful because what it does is it automatically shifts our perspective. If you if you imagine the mind has these, you know, these different modes, thinking about myself versus other people, using your name turns on the, the, the neural machinery for thinking about others. And that's really important because we know it's much easier to give advice to other people than it is for us to take our own advice. I often ask people, I talk to about these kinds of things, like to, to think about the self-disparaging thoughts they often think to themselves. And then I ask them, hey, have you ever told someone else those things? Like you're a total shit. There's no way you'll ever do this. You suck. Like I'm sure it happens at times in, in highly dysfunctional relationships, but no person has ever admitted to me that when their friend comes to them with a problem, that that's the way they coach them through it. In fact, what people often tell me is that they're embarrassed to even articulate out loud what they say to themselves silently. If if we just pause for a second on that observation, I think it's really powerful. Many people are unwilling to even verbalize to a trusted other what they say to themselves because it's so outlandish. It's so inappropriate in a certain sense. And, and, you know, not surprisingly, when we think those things, they can have harmful results. And so, you know, to get back to the solution, try to coach yourself through the situation like you were a friend, use your name to do it. Uh, We find that that often activates this challenge orientation, which can make a real difference when you're under the American Ninja spotlight or, um, you know, doing three throws for the NBA. We haven't actually done the disclaimers. We haven't done studies in those contexts, but the idea is that we think they would generalize. Well,
0: I only wish that I had found your book like maybe three weeks sooner because I found it shortly after the Ninja Warrior experience. Um, I was, I think it was when I was reading uh, Adam Grant's brand new book and I think he had mentioned your book in there as well. Um, but it was talking specifically about chatter and all the things that we're discussing now. And I was like, yeah, I think this is probably what happened with the, the Ninja Warrior experience because it wasn't like I massively failed. I was about an inch away for my toe being on the lip that it should have hit to continue going forwards. And if I think about the difference in getting that extra inch, And I reverse engineer because I like to break everything down into its component parts. As you talked about, that when you get to this point where all of a sudden you kind of have what I've uh, I've described and what other people describe as tunnel vision, where you really can't focus on much and the executive function goes away. And all of a sudden, like my heart was – I thought my heart was going to explode out of my head. That's what it felt like. But at the same time, my arms and legs felt like they weighed 5,000 pounds because I didn't have that free-flowing energy. If that hadn't been there, I easily would have had enough of the step-off, the one – um, platform to the rope to the next platform that I, I wouldn't have missed that one inch that I was away, but now going back I can distinctly remember when they do the the walk through beforehand and they show you all the obstacles and they give you the rules, all I probably needed to do to make up that one inch was talk to myself and say Zach. You've done obstacles like this how many times before? Many, many times. Is there anything here that you're not physically strong enough to do? No. Four years ago, I would have said, I am not physically capable of doing these things, which is why I spent years training. But if I looked at it objectively or somebody else had been standing next to me talking into my ear, is there anything on here that you haven't really done before? Well, there's one that's a little bit out of my my technique range, but the rest of them, I've done this a hundred times. Is there any reason you can't get through this? No, absolutely not. That's not the voice that was in my head. The voice in my head was, Oh my God, there are a lot of lights, and look at all the cameras, and I'm surrounded by professional athletes. What am I doing here? Right. And that's what made the difference in that one inch. But again, looking at the biology, it makes sense why I missed it by an inch.
1: Look, I'm an expert in these things, you know, presumably. <laughs> and yeah, um, I had a very similar experience recently. I had a really high stakes um, talk coming up, and it was during the pandemic, and it was via Zoom. And and the organizers of the talk, it, you know, it was almost like I was a subject in my own experiment because they kept on changing what they wanted me to do. One minute they wanted me to tape record here, the next minute do it live here, then tape record, then live, back and forth, back and forth. And you know, I was going up to the finish line. I'm like, what is going on? This is not good. Oh God, what if I screw this up? It's going to be everywhere. And and then I, I I you know I just I did know the tool and I used it. Ethan, you've you've given literally. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of presidents. You've never screwed one up terribly. Why are you worried about this? And guess what? It'll be over in three hours, and then you can go do whatever. And it's a switch, and the switch was flipped, and it made that difference. So, um, uh, you know, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And I think this is this gets back to um, the importance of knowing what the tools are. If you don't know what the tools are, you can't use them right and some of these tools just aren't on people's radar like when we first started doing work on this what we call distant self talk coaching yourself like a friend there were lots of examples of people doing this throughout history so there are records of Julius Caesar talking to himself like he was a, another person using his name um the statesman Henry Adams more contemporary times Julius Caesar and and Jennifer Lawrence all did it under stressful circumstances um, the, the name that had been given to it was illyism And people had speculated that this was just a sign of of narcissism. Like, you know, people who have inflated egos talk to themselves using their own name. Well, the science shows that A, it's not linked with narcissism and B, this serves a function. It can help people. And the science has articulated how it works. And so I think that that that's why these tools really matter. And it's why it's why we need the science, really, to understand how how they work. I want to mention one other thing that you you touched on, um, and then I'll throw it back to you. You, you said that this was a, a game of inches in a certain sense, that you had all the t- physical tools you needed, and um, it was really the, the mental or the psychological, literally, inches in your case that undid you. I think that's a, a really important point to emphasize because... When you get to the elite levels, which is really I think what we're talking about now, you're just looking for that inch level difference, right? You're not looking to you're not looking to get someone in, in an Olympic sprinting event, you know, four seconds more in their race. You're looking for a few milliseconds more because it is the milliseconds that makes the difference between first and second place. It's the person who can hit the free throw with under one second left on the shot clock that determines whether they win the championship or not. And that's really the terrain under which the mind that we have uh, can make a difference. And so um, I think it's important to, to point out that That's what we're dealing
0: with. Yeah, and just to to iterate this one more time, you actually have a term that goes with this idea of how we give much better advice to others than we do to ourselves. You call a Solomon's paradox. And I think this idea of distant self-talk is so important to learn how to do this. And it's actually a trick that I've learned in my coaching practice, where if I'm talking to somebody and they're putting together a resume or they wanna get ready for an interview and I want them to better understand the value they can bring to others, I'll first ask them, well, what what are all the assets or the skills that you have? And they're like, well, you know, I I guess I can do this or that. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna stop you. Instead, I want you to think about your last employer and they're gonna recommend you for the job and all of your skills. What would they say? They completely change. It's amazing to watch this. We're all of a sudden like, well, they would say that, you know, Bob is incredibly organized and hardworking and he's been a positive force. I'm like, you realize you're talking about yourself right now. I'm like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. But I've noticed that people will do that when asked to speak of themselves in the the third person perspective. And the other thing I ask them, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, is when you talk about or you share what the negative thoughts are in your head, I ask them, how would you feel if somebody were talking that way about your best friend? Well, I would never allow them to talk about my best friend that way. Well, then why do you allow yourself to talk about yourself that way all the time? It's kind of a an aha moment where they realize they wouldn't allow anybody to treat somebody that they care about in their lives that way, but that's the voice in the script that's in their head twenty four seven.
1: And that's and I, and I think having that aha is really powerful. And what it allows us to do is be a lot more deliberate with respect to how we address this chatter and challenge it. We don't have to wait to kind of figure out how to get over these self-disparaging thoughts, which sometimes we never figure out how to do, but instead we've got a go-to technique. So the moment I find the chatter beginning to brew, all right, Ethan, what are you doing, man? You know, what would you tell, what would you tell your buddy, Jason? What would you say to him? And I say it to myself and it, 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 it neutralizes it, um, right there. So. So, I think that that does speak to the power. Now, one other point for listeners, you know, a question that sometimes comes up when we talk about these issues is well, why do we do this in the first place? Like, you know, if you believe in evolution, which I do, why would we, you know, you basically evolve in ways that enhance your ability to pass on your genes and you survive and thrive, all this stuff. So, why have we, you know, evolved to experience chatter? Why do we default to these? negative states and i think the reason that this happens is this is this is an instance of a well-intentioned response that runs awry right so just to kind of give people a, a way of making sense of why this happens so when you're under threat or when you're experiencing something you don't know you can handle it makes sense to a certain degree to zoom in on the problem right let's let's put everything else aside and just hyper-focus, I'm not going to worry about what I'm making for dinner tonight or what shows I'm going to watch. I'm just going to think about this issue I'm dealing with right now, right? So that's a very adaptive response. The problem is that concomitant with that zoomed-in focus, we have this infusion of negative emotion that then gets us stuck there. And so we then lose the ability to flexively zoom out. And think about all the things you just mentioned. And that's in a certain sense what we're reminding people to do with all these different tools or a lot of them is, hey, you can zoom out. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And if you do, you'll benefit from it. it's about shift. It's about shifting when we get stuck there.
0: Yeah. And I think that uh, when we're talking about this idea of distant self-talk, another thing you mentioned is just lending some perspective, right? Like just kind of doing a big zoom out and like, what what really is going to be the implication of this one meeting or this one presentation, or, you know, is it really going to matter in five or 10 years if something goes wrong? Like this idea of time traveling forwards. And I think in 99 out of a hundred cases, if somebody were to ask, is this really going to make a difference in 10 years? The answer would be no. I actually just had this conversation with my wife where something had come up with our kids or school or something, whatever it was. She was getting really upset and really getting sucked into it. And I said, just take a breath. If this works out the way we think it's going to, is this going to matter to their development in five or 10 years? Well, no. Well, then why worry about it, right? It's really not that big of a deal. But the flip side of it is that when I stood on the starting line or was getting ready to go, And I'm thinking to myself, in five years, is how I perform on this course going to matter? And it did, right? Because this is the kind of thing, let's say that I go out there and just crush the course and hit a buzzer. That's a life-changing experience. And with American Ninja Warrior, you get one shot. You don't get a few practice runs. You do get to know the course. You get one shot. I stood around for nine hours in the warm-up area before I got in front of the camera and I got to be on the course thinking, if I fall, that's it. That's three and a half years of training gone and succeeding could make a difference at five or 10 years. And it's all that pressure in your mind. It's all about this one thing.
1: Now, this is why, um, so, you know, one theme of the book and the theme of my research you know, it's funny. As a researcher, I sometimes struggle to pronounce that damn word, research, <laughs> research. When I was recording the audiobook book for, for Chatter, as an aside, the, uh, the director kept a, you keep changing how you're pronouncing it. It's research one sense, research another. Anyway, um, an important theme of my research is, um, and something I, I genuinely, truly believe in, is that. A, there's no one size fits all tool that works for all people in all situations. And I think your 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 experience here really powerfully demonstrates that. Like so when you were in the waiting room, what we call temporal distancing, which is imagining how you're going to feel about this a year or five years from now, which often does make people feel better when they're grappling with acute stressors, like all right, you know, there's this this talk I got to give. I'm a little stressed out about it. How are you going to feel about it next week? Well, and I always forget about these things after. I'll feel feel better. You identified an instance in which that particular tool wasn't serving you well. That doesn't mean it's not going to serve you well in other instances. I would venture to guess that it might be really useful for other things for you. But in that moment, it wasn't working for you. And that's where we need to begin to think about really beginning this process of doing some self-experimentation to figure out, well, what are the combinations of tools that work best for us given the unique challenges we face? Because not every challenge we have looks the same. And so, you know, there are some instances where um, the golden ticket for me for for nipping the chatter in the bud involves distant self-talk, so, you know, coaching myself like I was talking to a friend, mental time travel like we just discussed, and going for a walk in nature. In other instances, you know, I may have to layer on to that, consulting my chatter advisory board, my, my friends and colleagues are really helpful, or doing a ritual or cleaning up a space, right? And sometimes it's just the rituals and cleaning up a space. I don't want to do cognitive stuff. I don't perfectly know how everything, you know, what combination is going to work best for every single challenge. But what I have is this elaborate toolbox. So I can very quickly sort through things and find a combination that does work. And I have yet to be, to be stumped just to punctuate the message. You wouldn't expect the same tool to work for every single situation, given the complexity of the kinds of situations that there are out there and the complexity that we bring to the situation. So I think the more we can shift away from searching for these magic pills, the better the magic pill is in the having access to the entire toolbox not having one tool.
0: Exactly. And looking, looking forwards to, um, you know, God willing, having the opportunity to do this again next year. And hopefully they won't disregard me and say, so, well, he fell. So we don't need him back. Um, I am pretty good at crafting a story. It is what I do for a living. So hopefully I can create another audition video and get myself back on. But what I've learned and what I then want to apply to, to other people's experiences is that number one, I spent way too much time talking to myself as I. I can or I can't do the following. And if I had stepped outside myself being a coach, which is ironic because I coach people all day long, um, but it's a lot harder to do that for yourself than for others, which, again, if somebody wants to dig into that deeper in your book, you call Solomon's paradox. I need to kind of step outside myself more to realize these are things that I've done before. One of the most important tools that I use to get over anxiety or arguments or things breaking down or whatever it is, I always ask myself the question, is this really going to matter in five years? But I should not have used that tool in this instance because the answer was a big giant, yes, this is going to matter in Mm -hmm. five years. Um, And then I think the other one that I really didn't establish at all or look at is rituals. Because I know that a lot of athletes have very specific rituals, whether it's, you know, I'm going to tap my toes 10 times or whatever. People on the outside think it looks ridiculous. But as you talked about a little bit and you talk about a lot in the book, it establishes a sense of control. This is a behavior I can control, which then allows the blood to flow more freely to my legs and my arms so I don't miss by an inch. And I didn't really have any rituals. And one of the things that really threw me off was that as soon as they kind of usher you to the, the stage, all of a sudden you've got, well, you need to stand over here, get on the sex. Okay. The camera's going to be on you. I need to, I need two sentences. I want you to be inspirational. Oh, oh my God. Okay. Now you need to go, oh, but don't go off the steps. Yeah. We need, I need to give you a five count. And then you get on the steps, make sure to wave to your family and your brain's like, ah, right. Which is why I said to myself which one's my right foot again? Because I just couldn't process all the information. But had I had rituals, I could have felt like I just was more centered and that stuff was just white noise as opposed to that was driving my thought process. There's so much cognitively happening that my brain just shut down and said, nope, can't do it. And then when they said go, I'm like, oh crap, what what do I do? So I know for sure I would establish rituals, but The last place that I want to go very quickly, and I know that we have to to wrap up shortly, um, is for anybody else that's listening to this now that's not going to be on an American Ninja Warrior course, but they are battling imposter syndrome. That's a big thing in my industry. They're thinking to themselves, I don't belong here. And they're labeling themselves as I am, or I am not either. I am not good enough at this, or I am bad at building relationships, or I am just a procrastinator or whatever it is that the that's driving them. What is one of your tools that can help them very simply start to reframe or rewrite the way that they talk about themselves with an I am label in the area that I want to go. And I think it's, I mean, frankly, if there's one sentence that stood out in your book that maybe want to reach out, it was that you said we need to reframe our threats or our problems as challenges. So how can we start to rewrite these labels and limiting beliefs that cause an imposter syndrome as challenges to start to get over them?
1: I, I think it's as simple as shifting from I can't to I can. You know, that's the goal, right? The, the threat, what drives a threat response is I can't do it. I don't belong. The challenge response is, I can do it, right? I've gotten here, I do belong. And once you have that orientation, I think what you find is that that in turn, it not just impacts your physiology, it, it there's a chain reaction, right? It activates this self-fulfilling prophecy in which you then begin to act in ways that bring those cognitions to life. You know, I remember when I started my faculty position here at the University of Michigan, um, you know, I had those feelings of imposterism, like you were describing too. like one moment. I'm a graduate student. Next minute, I'm a faculty member and I'm, you know, I'm dealing with um, going to lunch with some of the most famous scientists ever in psychology. Right. And so, I, oh, my God, when are they going to figure out they made the wrong decision? Right. And then I zoomed in on that. And then I zoomed back. Well, look, you worked hard. Everyone starts off at this point. It's natural. It's normal to feel this way. Everyone I've spoken to does. Normalizing our experience is also really important. I talk about this in the book too. And there are things you could do to to normalize your situation. I think actually knowing that if you're experiencing this imposterism, it's not it's not actually this rare event that you're you know it's it's a lot of people experience that too. Same is true, of course, of chatter. I think knowing that can also be really empowering for helping people um, make sense of things. So, so I mean, if to, to go back to your question, what's the one thing you can say? You want to shift from I can't to I can, and, you know, use that distant self-talk to help you do that, to help coach yourself through it like you would another person.
0: And one other thing to just to add on really quickly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong being the the expert here and me being the novice, but whenever people are dealing with imposter syndrome and they say, well, I can't just reframe it from I can't, to I can, that, that that's just too simple. And that's not even true. What I will uh, have them do. And it's exactly the way that I moved forwards with my goal with American Ninja Warrior is you just pick something that's the tiniest bit beyond what you already have proven that you can do. So for example, if you're an editor or a director or whatever, well, have you done this before in some capacity? Well, yes. Well, maybe now you're working with a bigger director or it's a bigger film or a bigger budget, or instead of, 100 people seeing what you're going to edit, 100 million are going to see it. Like for me, jumping on Cobra Kai, I can't even comprehend that on the computer that I have sitting next to me, over 100 million people across the entire planet are going to watch my decisions. I don't even think about it. I just think about, I know that I can cut a scene. I know that I'm good at putting together a training montage or an action sequence. That's something that I can do. So I say, imposter syndrome, you just have to chip away at it. You find whatever that little thing is that you know you already can do, maybe it's a little bit harder, but you do it next, and you basically are proving to yourself over time that I can do it and i don 't know if if that's uh, if that's good advice or uh, I should be giving other advice
1: no, I think that's great advice it's making these shifts like tiny shifts, and it's refocusing people on. You know less what we call anxiolytic ways of thinking about things. So makes total sense. The only thing I would add is that for the people who say objectively I can't it isn't true, and I would argue this is all the realm of subjectivity. When when you know we're not talking about a, a case of a new editor being asked to now translate you know a Japanese film into Chinese like or Mandarin like you can't, there is an objective, no, you can't do that. And I think there's value in being able to recognize that there are some things that we cannot do, but that's not the terrain that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a much fuzzier terrain of a person being in a situation where it's just not clear whether they can or can't. There is no objective yes or no, it's a maybe, and and I think what we've learned from the science is when you're in that maybe circumstance, there are ways of shifting the way you think that can make uh, a big
0: difference. And there's one tiny thing I'm going to add because I know you have to go. I actually was put in this position of editing a film 100% in Mandarin when I didn't speak a word. Oh, boy. And the way that I reframed it was I can't do this yet. I know how to edit a scene. I know how to edit action. I don't know how to speak Mandarin, but I understand people and I understand performance and I understand emotion. So I can't do it yet. But if I edit and I learn Mandarin at the same time, I'll figure it out. And I did. I ended up editing an entire film shot completely in spoken in Mandarin with no subtitles. And it took me longer. But the reframe was, I can't do this yet. So that was one one of the additions. I love it. I mean,
1: that speaks even. even, I just thought it was hilarious.
0: You brought that up as an example.
1: And for those of you who are listening, this was not planted. At all. Next time, I'm going to have to to choose a much more extreme example, like building a spaceship. There you you go. That I I can't do yet. Be a a line chef at a restaurant. Exactly. Well,
0: I want to be respectful of your time. And I know that you've got another call to be uh, on uh, very, very soon. Um, But I'm hoping that everybody listening today that's going through some of these issues with their chatter, with imposter syndrome, whatever it might be, they seek you out and they seek out your book. How can they do so easily and efficiently?
1: Uh, They can go to my website, www.ethancross, it's cross with a K, K K-R-O-S-S, .com, www.ethancross.com. You get info about me, my lab, the book. Um, there and I, uh, I hope it. I hope you enjoy it. and I hope it helps
0: people. I have no doubt that it will. It's been a tremendously beneficial for me and opened up a whole new world of things that I can train far beyond pull-ups and push-ups or editing scenes or whatever it might be. Like now, now I have a, a a much deeper area to explore that's going to have much more profound positive results in the future. And all that's there and you know 170 glorious, very simple to to get through pages. So, well,
1: thank you very much. I mean that 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 makes all the work for you know. For feel 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 like it was worth it so thank you
0: you bet on that note i just wanted to thank you again for your time and your expertise and i appreciate having you here today
1: all right zach thank you good luck with everything
0: thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show